when your perception shifts, the way that you view the world changes. Your reality changes. What you thought possible changes. So you see someone else do something and then you look at that person and you see the same potential in yourself. Simply knowing that something is possible can raise your motivation for pursuing it. Okay, welcome back to the Me Search podcast. So, Me Search, if you are unfamiliar with that term, it's been described as when a researcher uses their personal experiences to tackle academic questions. Critics dismiss it as being unscientific, academic narcissism, and diary writing for the overeducated. Here, you'll find conversations with high achievers, so whatever that means, where we discover what makes people tick, what drives their excellence, and I'll also be adding some solo conversations on, well, anything, uh, which is what that's going to be today. So I had a guest planned, but as we know, life gets busy, and I have rescheduled that person, but... I thought that this would be the perfect time to talk about something that I mentioned in the last episode with Dr. Mariana Locke. So if you missed that, I would go back and have a listen. But at the very end, I said I wanted to talk a little bit about confidence. So confidence is often talked about as one of if not the most important aspects of not only sport psychology and mental toughness, but for, you know, job performance, it matters for relationships or getting a relationship. Sometimes that matters. Um, And unfortunately for us as athletes or you as athletes or you as an employee, confidence isn't something that we achieve and then we just get to keep forever. So what I mean by that is once you have experienced confidence, yes, it's likely that you'll you'll eventually get it back, but it doesn't mean that you get to keep it forever. So confidence is something that can change daily. And just to reiterate or maybe say in a different way, it's not like you're in a video game and you're working through these levels of mental performance and then you hit a level of confidence. So you level up and then you never need to worry about going back. Confidence is fragile. So we don't want to just learn how to build self-confidence, but we want to act in ways that's going to help us keep it as long as possible. And then when it wanes, and when we don't feel so confident, we have tactics that can help us get it back. So I'm going to throw out some quotes from the article Cognitive Techniques for Building Confidence and Enhancing Performance by Zinser, Bunker, and Williams. So confident people 
tend to set more challenging goals and pursue them actively. Confident people show increased effort. Confidence affects game strategies as confident athletes are usually not afraid to take chances. Confidence affects psychological momentum. So you've probably heard about the topic of confidence and it's a term we throw around a lot, like I said, but what you may not have heard of is self-efficacy or not only that, a smart guy named Albert Bandura. So unless you took some intro to psych classes in university, Um, you've heard of him then, but if you haven't, you most definitely have probably not heard of him. (laughs) And at the time of me creating this episode, Albert Bandura is about 95 years old. So he has been around the block and a psych nerds like him, not only because he was born in Canada, uh, but he has contributed so much to the field of psychology. So he has come up with things like the self-efficacy theory. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, I just want to sort of draw a line between the words confidence and the words self-efficacy. And really the best way before you start talking about these words is to really define them so then we know what we're talking about. So some people will use the terms self-efficacy and confidence interchangeably. Some would say there's a direct correlation between the two. So uh, whether self-efficacy leads to confidence or confidence leads to self-efficacy. But Bandura, so Albert Bandura would say that confidence is a nondescript term that refers to strength of belief, but does not necessarily specify what the certainty is about. So I can be supremely confident that I will fail at an endeavor, um, just as an example. And he says that confidence is really a catchword rather than a construct embedded in a theoretical system. Self-efficacy refers to belief in one's capabilities to organize and execute courses of action required to produce given attainments. These capabilities include regulating not only physical performance execution, so for example, the ability to execute a jump shot in basketball, but it also is about thought processes, emotional states, actions needed in relation to changing environmental conditions. And that's from the text Advances in Sports Psychology. Self-efficacy influences how people cognitively construe or make sense of the things that are happening to them. It fosters optimism, opportunities for self-growth. People with higher self-efficacy set higher goals and then commit to those goals more strongly. They engage in more productive attributions to explain their successes and failures. They believe strongly about their problem-solving abilities. Self-efficacy or efficacious beliefs influences the way that people behave, think, and feel. It influences behavioral choices, 
in the selection of specific situations or activities for which people participate in. And that's also from advances in sports psychology. So what what is this saying? Uh, Just throw out a lot of jargon there. So if you have high self-efficacy, you are more likely to put yourself out there. So in more challenging situations. And if we think like what's one of the ways to become a better athlete, employee, or person is to put yourself in situations that are within your capabilities, but you're stretching yourself, you're challenging yourself. And then if you're successful in those challenging situations, you plant a little confident seed in your metaphorical garden. So those with confidence will focus on successfully mastering a task rather than worrying about performing negatively or the consequences. And if you lack it, you spend more time dealing with anxiety and worries about what other people think or general loss of control over the situation. Um, So essentially your focus is just pinned to all of the wrong things. And yes, there are strategies for building confidence or building self-efficacy, but remembering that it's not something that we get and then we keep it forever. It's It's an unstable skill and it fluctuates, especially sometimes as we near competition, if we're thinking of a athletic context or maybe a big presentation that you're making at work. So it requires reassurance. It requires that you're continuously building on your skills. And then, like most things, it's not a one-size-fits-all. There are indicators that the research points us towards, but you need to be your own N of one. It's just like the title of this podcast, so me-search. Nothing can quite replace experiential learning. And you need to conduct your own personal research to figure out what works for you to have your highest sense of self-efficacy or to be your most confident best self. The theoretical model of self-efficacy is what I'm going to talk about today. Um, And there are a few ways that it projects to have efficacious beliefs. And then just keeping in mind that this is a framework, so a set of ideas that will hopefully get you thinking and reflecting on your own confidence or self-efficacy. And also keeping in mind that this isn't the only framework. This isn't the only way. There are so many different theories out there. We have cognitive restructuring, reframing, overlearning of skills, environmental comfort, imagery. There are so many different ways and thoughts that people think you can increase your self-efficacy or confidence. But the ones that I'm going to talk about today are within the theoretical model of self-efficacy. So those are, there's only four, inactive mastery, vicarious experiences, verbal persuasion, and physiological and affective states, or some people call that emotional arousal. Okay, so number one, inactive mastery. So this refers to your own performance accomplishments. If you've done something once, you'll be more likely 
to tell yourself that you can do it again. So this might seem obvious. The more success you've had, the more you believe that you'll be able to replicate the success. This is the most powerful way to create confidence. It's about your experience. The more experience you have, the more likely you'll be confident. The more success you have in training or more success you have in sport or in business or in presentations, the more you'll be able to translate that to the next event. Success breeds success. However, (laughs) you need to be able to put yourself in a situation where you can win. So if you haven't had any successes, that's where you start to maybe need to think a little bit more or translate one success over to whatever it is that you're doing. So maybe um, you are really great at one sport and you're starting another, just translating it over or skills at work. So performance accomplishments increase self-confidence in weightlifting more than observing a model did. And observing a model enhanced self-confidence more than verbal persuasion did. So there's sort of layers to what works best in creating confidence. But again, there's all this research, but what may work for you may not work for someone else. But if we just really think intuitively, improving our self-efficacy through inactive mastery, so through past experiences, past success, seems to be the most intuitive idea, at least to me. But I mean, to each their own. (laughs) But the thought is you accumulate little wins and then each time it builds you up to think you can achieve the same success, but maybe push yourself a little bit further. So I'm going to read just a little blurb. It's from the book, The Confidence Code by Kay and Shipman. And they say, mastery isn't about being the best tennis player or the best mom. The residence of mastery is in the process and progress. It is about work and learning to develop an appetite for challenge. Mastery inevitably means encountering hurdles. You won't always overcome them, but you won't let them stop you from trying. You may never be a world-class swimmer, but you will learn to swim across a lake. And the unexpected byproduct of all the hard work that you're putting into mastering things? Confidence. The confidence you get from mastery is contagious. It spreads. It doesn't really matter what you master. For a child, it can be as simple as tying a shoe. What matters is that mastering one thing can give you the confidence to try something else. So again, success can breed more success. But the flip side of that is there are many high performers, especially, you know, athletes you think of, people who perform very well on the world stage. So, and then the next year, or in the case of Olympians, four years later, they're not feeling so confident. So how does that seem possible? An Olympic gold medalist, like doubting how he or she is going to make the next Olympics. And athletes who are usually feeling this way have become so lost in their thoughts, their fears, 
Which is why what we say to to ourselves and what we focus on is so important, our self-talk. And I hate to plug the Mindset on Mobility program, but that's what we talk a lot about. The initial portion of that program is all focus and self-talk. So we need to be conscious and aware of these thoughts or they will breed feelings of inadequacy and doubt. So not only do you need to be aware of your self-talk, but then digging into the feelings, the beliefs of where those thoughts came from in the first place. So what are your deep-seated beliefs about yourself that are causing your self-talk to focus on fear and inadequacy? So that's just a little side note. Um, Let's move to the second one, which is vicarious experiences. So just recap, first one, inactive mastery, so your own performance accomplishments. Second one, vicarious experiences. So this is observational learning or modeling or imitation. When people observe a behavior in others, they can form an expectation about their own behavior. So we see someone carry out a task And then we see that our own level of competency is similar to that person. So then we say to ourselves, okay, if they can do it, I can definitely do it. (laughs) So seeing someone else achieve something, especially if you're near the same skill level, may give you the extra confidence to go achieve something similar. So this Imitation concept is really interesting to me. So but throughout my life, I've been told to fake it till you make it. Uh, and while this may not exactly be in the lines of what researchers are talking about when they spoke of vicarious experiences, I do just want to touch on it a little bit. So a lot of people disagree with this concept because they think they're, they take it too literally, literally, at least that's my opinion. And then they end up arguing like, uh, by faking it, you're being inauthentic. <laughs> So I think the obvious fact here, maybe not so obvious, is that you shouldn't be fake. You shouldn't do uh, something that is really inauthentic to you. But there's also the thought that if it doesn't feel right or real to you, then the behavior won't stick. So fake it till you make it doesn't mean you're trying to be someone else. You're just trying to display qualities or confidence into quote unquote tricking your body to feeling a particular way. So you're imitating or you're modeling someone that appears to be confident. What I believe is that if you are going into a performance, a presentation, an an event, and you don't feel confident, acting not confident isn't going to help you. So it's going to affect your thoughts, it's going to affect your body language, it's going to affect how your competitors view you and treat you. It's going to affect your performance. So why not? on the outside, act like you're confident. Doesn't mean they have to go and be conceited or arrogant. It just means standing a little taller, shoulders back. It's having some self-talk that's positive. It's believing that if you just go out and do your best or be your best, you can be proud of how you performed. Our thoughts affect our feelings and what happens inside our body. And our body language is the story that our body is telling. And it's important. It influences how we feel, but also has the ability to influence others. 
So just, again, a little side note, if you haven't read the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, it's a really great book, kind of a hard read, but a good book. But he says common gestures can also influence our thoughts. So shaking your head yes, you're more likely to accept the message that is being told to you, whereas shaking your head no, you're more likely to reject it. Or he gives an example of college students that were asked to rate the humor of cartoons from uh, Gary Larson's The Far Side while holding a pencil in their mouth. So if you hold a pencil in your mouth, like close it, you actually end up smiling without even really realizing it. So the, the corners of the mouth go up. So those who were smiling without any awareness that they were doing so, found the cartoons funnier than those who were frowning. So you think with your body, not only with your brain. And then just like really obvious things, you see someone walking around with slumped shoulders, their head down, they don't make eye contact. Like what thoughts do you have about that person? And then conversely, what about someone who walks with their head up and shoulders back? The posture that a person takes is a reflection of his or her emotional state. And there is a visible difference. So if you just think of someone in your life who you believe to be confident or have a high sense of self-efficacy, like how do they carry themselves? Are they slunched over, not making eye contact, or are they walking around like they own the place? So even if you don't feel very confident right now, or all the time, the more you act like you're confident, the more likely you will start to feel it. So act as if. Act as if you are already great. Because chances are you are. Okay, so I'm going to just, that was a huge tangent. I'm going to go back to that vicarious experiences. So remembering, recap, observational learning, modeling, imitation. And I want to talk about the story of the four-minute mile. And you may or may not have heard this story before. I'm going to tell the piece as it was told on history.com. So I've taken a few pieces out of it so it's not super long and drawn out. So May 6th. 1954, the first four-minute mile. In Oxford, England, 25-year-old medical student Roger Bannister cracks track and field's most notorious barrier, the four-minute mile. Bannister won the mile race with a time of three minutes, 59.4 seconds. For years, so many athletes had tried and failed to run a mile in less than four minutes. People actually made it out to be physically impossible. The world record for a mile was four minutes and 1.3 seconds, set by Gunder Hag, hopefully I said that right, of Sweden in 1945. So on May 6, 1954, Conditions were far from ideal. It was windy, it was raining, there was a considerable crosswind that was blowing across the track as the mile race was set to begin. At 6 p.m., the starting gun was fired. In a carefully planned race, Bannister was aided by Chris Rasher, a former Cambridge runner. For the first half mile, Brasher led the field with Bannister close behind. And then another 
runner took up the lead and reached the three-quarter mile mark in three minutes and 0.4 seconds. Bannister was right behind. Bannister took the lead with about 350 yards to go and passed the unofficial timekeeper at the 1500 meter mark in three minutes and 43 seconds, thus equaling the world record for that distance. After Bannister threw in all his reserves and broke the tape in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. As soon as the first part of the score was announced, three minutes, the crowd erupted in pandemonium. Bannister went on to win the British and Empire Championships in the mile run and the European title in the 1500 meter event in 1954. At the end of the year, Bannister retired from athletic competition to pursue his medical career full-time, and in 1955 recounted his experiences in the book, The Four-Minute Mile. His world record in the mile did not stand long, and the record continued to be lowered. A sub-four is still a notable time, but top international runners now routinely accomplish that feat. So... Less than six weeks after Bannister's historic feat, Australian John Landy ran 3.58 at a track meet in Finland, throwing down the gauntlet. So what is going on with the four-minute mile story in history? So six weeks after the four-minute mile was broken, this physically impossible feat, the performance was repeated by someone else. And then within the next year... 37 runners broke it, and to this day, continues to happen. So did people all of a sudden change their training, start working harder? Did everyone suddenly get faster? So some people now call the banister effect when the impossible becomes possible. It was a global mindset shift for the running community. When your perception shifts the way that you view the world changes. Your reality changes. What you thought possible changes. So you see someone else do something and then you look at that person and you see the same potential in yourself. Simply knowing that something is possible can raise your motivation for pursuing it. This vicarious experience. Okay, so that's number two. Number three, verbal persuasion. So this is when your peers, your friends, your family, your coaches, they persuade you to have faith in your own abilities. Verbal persuasion, so while not found to be entirely as beneficial as the other streams, still has a strong influence on self-efficacy. So could you just for a moment imagine if you were with someone who was always doubting your abilities and made you feel like you were constantly being scrutinized? It would be so hard to pull yourself into challenging situations that would help you accumulate these little wins to begin with. So just with that being said, I just want to draw your attention back to the concept of self-talk. So while you may have someone actually talking to you sporadically throughout the day, you see your coach for a couple hours, you see a family for a couple hours, maybe your friends, um, but do you know who you're listening to all the time? (laughs) You. And if you're not thinking positive or constructive thoughts, you're probably not going to feel very confident. So 
be kind to yourself. I suggest writing your thoughts down so you truly become aware of them and then spending time reframing those thoughts so they're going to be thoughts that are more likely to help you. Another approach is like when you're worried or anxious, if you imagine what you would say to reassure your best friend or someone really close to you, think of that and then say that to yourself. Okay, so that was verbal persuasion, a little bit of a faster one. The last one, actually, let's recap. So first one, if you recall, was inactive mastery. So previous successes, vicarious experiences was number two. If they can do it, I can do it. Verbal persuasion, so what people say to you. And then the last one, physiological and effective states, or as some people say, emotional arousal. So when people associate unpleasant physiological arousal that arises from specific emotions with poor performance or when they experience comfortable sensations or pleasant emotions that leads them to feel confident in their abilities in any particular situation. So what this has to do or what I'm saying is and actually just that was a quote from Advances in Sports Psychology. So what this is saying is that this concept of physiological or emotional arousal or affective states is about how you are perceiving your physiological state. Do you perceive butterflies in the stomach as a sign that you're not ready to perform or that your body is telling you it's ready to go? So people with low self-efficacy are more likely to interpret butterflies and nerves as a sign that they're not ready. And I remember my mom would always tell me that I worry and I'm nervous because I care about what I'm about to do. Thanks, mom. <laughs> okay, so nerves are something that most people deal with at one point or another in their lives. And it's important that even though you may be nervous, like come back to the facts. Don't get carried away by emotions and stories. The sport stays the same. The court, the field the, stays the same size. The net is in the same place. Or it's the same content at work. It's the same presentation. It's the same people that you're talking to. So stick with the facts. So even though in a sporting context, like the arena may be new, uh, the rules, the various aspects of what makes the game the game, those are the same. And then you can pull the same ideas out for a work context. So those are the four areas in the theoretical model of self-efficacy. Remembering self-efficacy created by our man, Albert Bandura. Canadian psychologist refers to the belief in one's capability to produce a given attainment. So to produce something, it's your ability to carry through with something. And then to recap one more, one last time, inactive mastery, vicarious experiences, verbal persuasion, and emotional arousal. And then I guess I'll end by saying that courage is the ability to act when it's the last thing you want to do. Courage is doing the right thing even when it's the hard thing. Courage is putting yourself out there 
even if there's a possibility that you might fall on your face. So if you can't find the confidence, find your courage. And remembering that if you don't have your confidence right away, like it comes with practice and with time. So it can be hard to show up day after day without having the confidence to perform or to get through your workday or whatever it is. But one of my favorite sayings, which I first heard from a yoga teacher in Halifax, one of my favorite yoga teachers, Sherry Zach, she would say, you have to show up and suck before you can show up and shine. No one is a total pro right away. So becoming confident, increasing your self-efficacy, this will take time. So just be easy on yourself. And that wraps up our chat for this week. I will see you very soon with one of my favorite people in the entire world. I'm so excited to have this conversation with one of my good friends next week, and I can't wait to share it with you. So until next time.